from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. The last time we spoke was right after these talks over the climate bill that had been in the works for 18 months fell apart. So I asked you your state of mind, and you said it was rough, but you had some hope. What's your state of mind today? Oh my gosh. It's like when your stomach has been clenched for two years, it's really hard to let go. Um, So we purposefully went to the mountains for a couple of weeks um, in the Adirondacks, and it's starting to unclench. And now I'm going to start letting myself feel some pretty unbridled joy. (laughs) You and I have known each other for a long time. And you have this sense of optimism that I appreciate, but often, you know, it feels like sometimes overly optimistic in the face of a lot of troublesome trends in Congress and in government. But today, your optimism reigns. Yeah, totally. All those people who were eye-rolling me over the optimism. Well, it did win. So, yeah, pretty excited about that. That is Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions. She's a regular commentator on this podcast and a public policy expert who lobbies for and actually helps craft pro-clean energy and climate legislation. Just a few weeks ago, a massive piece of climate legislation looked like it was on the brink of ruin, potentially crippling President Biden's climate agenda. And that's because a key Senate Democrat, Joe Manchin, walked away from negotiations for a second time, citing concerns about inflation. Inflation is absolutely killing many, many people. And can't we wait to make sure that we do nothing to add to that? And I can't make that decision on basically on taxes of any type and also on the energy and climate because it takes the taxes to pay for the investment in the clean technology that I'm in favor of. It was looking pretty bleak, but behind the scenes, people were working to change Manchin's mind. Well, I have to say a lot of people stepped up, and this was everything from senators to people who were doing a lot of the -the on-the-ground analysis, really started very much making the case that this bill would be an inflation buster and that would help mitigate inflation. And so Manchin and the leading Democrat in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, started to negotiate. Um, He was very quiet about it with Majority Leader Schumer, so it was very much backroom talks and I think private talks, but he started being able to make the case, and once he did, it was no holds barred on getting this done. At the end of July, Manchin and Schumer shocked everyone by finally reaching a deal on the climate package. They even gave it a new name, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. It earmarks over $360 billion for climate and energy. Independent analyses estimate it will get us most of the way to slashing emissions in half by the end of the decade. And this Sunday, it finally passed the Senate. And it heads over for a vote in the democratically controlled House later this week, where it will presumably pass quickly and head to the president's desk to be signed. It's the first major climate legislation since scientist James Hansen brought clear evidence of human-caused warming to the Senate over 30 years ago. So people are using all kinds of words like historic, this is unprecedented, a game changer. How would you describe what's on the table right now? Yeah, it's all of those things. It absolutely is. It's we and anybody else in the world has never done anything this significant. Now, of course, the proof will be in the pudding, right? The proof will be in execution, but it's certainly setting the table to execute. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. 
This week, America is about to supercharge the clean energy economy, and it finally has a fighting chance to slash emissions. So what's in the bill, and what comes next? Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. So what is the Inflation Reduction Act? Well, it has a lot of tax credits for renewables and all kinds of clean technologies and some for emerging fossil technologies. There is a whole funding mechanism, a national green bank, basically, that will be able to fund outside of government a lot of really interesting projects, both at the state and local and federal level. And it has a whole bunch of rebates for customers for whether it's electric vehicles or electrification technologies like heat pumps. So there were a lot of pieces in there that are really going to change the game for technology, for customers, for the environment, and for markets. You are not just an ordinary pundit. You are someone who has been so heavily involved in this process for a decade and a half. And you have actually worked on many of the programs, writing language around these programs that made it into this bill. What has that process been like to get to the point of where we are? Well, one thing I've been working on forever, I think the first energy storage tax credit was introduced by Senator Wyden in 2009. And I was in that period of time working for what was then called the Electricity Storage Association. I was their policy person and led a bunch of efforts to try to get an energy storage tax credit standalone over the finish line. And that this bill like crawling across broken glass. In the meantime, it's it's turned from a science project into an actual industry and technology has progressed, become cheaper. And it's been incredibly satisfying to see that finally get over the finish line and also to see people like Senator Martin Heinrich take it on and make it bigger and better than it was. Um, So we've been able to accumulate a lot more champions in the Hill, both in the Senate and the House. We've been able to socialize a lot of these programs, whether it was energy storage, there's also a microgrid credit and interconnection credit, which, you know, often interconnecting, as wonky as this is, interconnecting a lot of projects can just make them not pencil out because of the cost that the utilities exact on the renewable energy industry. So there are just so many things in this that are really, um, really important and game-changing to the entire industry. And it's great to finally see them all together getting done. So because you've been so involved in this process for so many years, I want to get your take on 
how other people are framing this bill. So first, I want to talk about the historical context. Uh, Over a decade ago, we saw this other major piece of legislation fall apart at the last minute in the Senate, the the Waxman-Markey bill. That was a bill that would have, among many other things, created this carbon pricing system. It was potentially transformative, but it died And I'm wondering, I know both you and your husband were involved in that. How does this bill compare to that one? Yeah, so that bill had mostly sticks through this cap-and-trade mechanism. It also had some carrots through a renewable energy standard, which we have been talking about ever since. It basically set goals for how much renewable energy you deploy. But it was much more about cleaning up the current stack of emissions rather than building a new stack. This was in a much different time technologically. So there was an issue with coal stacks, right? Um, We hadn't gotten into cheap fracking yet. And then there was also a real difference in politics. Now, when Obama came in as president, he had huge majorities. That year was a sweeping majority. 58 Democrats were in the Senate. But there were a lot of senators from coal states that just could not take that vote. And in the end, you could see, would you rather be voting for universal health care through the Affordable Care Act, or are we going to have to find another way to do climate? And they chose instead, let's take the vote on health care and let's instead address climate through the EPA and Clean Air Act, which is what they decided to do during the Obama administration. So this bill, to summarize, this bill is a whole bunch of carrots, and Waxman-Markey was was a whole lot of sticks. More so. There is one stick in this, which is a methane fee, a methane emission fee, which will be huge. That will have an enormous impact on emissions. And in fact, the industry is a point at a point now, uh, the gas industry is a, at a point for the most part where they're already developing technologies to deal with it and actually reducing methane helps them make more money in the end because they all have more usable gas. Um, but that is one of the sticks that is in this bill. Since we're talking about the history, there's one other thing that really stands out, and that's the way we're framing this bill versus Waxman-Markey. Waxman-Markey was often talking about how to make coal or fossil fuels more expensive and how to put renewables within reach. Now we're talking about clean energy, climate tech, renewable energy as inherently deflationary, as a tool for bringing costs down for people. Does that resonate for you? Absolutely. Waxman-Markey was seen as a punishment, whereas this is seen as an opportunity. And remember, a lot has happened in the intervening years. So during the Obama administration, he decided instead, all right, let's let the EPA start actually implementing Clean Air Act legislation, which means let's put mercury and other air toxic standards in place. Let's do a clean power plan. Let's put all of these in in place to try to at least seek some enforcement. Now, we know Trump rolled back a lot of those (laughs) through the courts. But in the meantime, we had a few really key things. One is that fracking, gas fracking became quite cheap that technology really changed and made the price of coal go up. All these regulatory initiatives also made the price of coal go up. And finally, something that a lot of people have been talking about is that we began to get much more grassroots engagement and support. And all of that environmental grassroots activism really also was sort of the third piece that in the meantime was building up and helping to get us to where we are now. So this is the result of years of negotiations and pressure from the left and some of the earlier work over the last decade on programs that eventually made it into this bill. 
a lot of people are are crying because they're so happy that this thing passed the Senate and is likely very soon to pass the House. There are people who are criticizing it. Some enviros just feel like it's too scaled down compared to the original Build Back Better proposal. It doesn't include a national target for renewable energy. Uh, it does include things like uh, a compromise on speeding up permitting of energy infrastructure, which could benefit certain types of fossil fuel infrastructure. What is controversial in this as folks on the left eye what's in the package? There are a lot of provisions on oil and gas that could have negative impacts on greenhouse gases and on communities that are on the front line. So this allows oil and gas drilling leases in the Gulf of Mexico and in the Alaska Cook Inlet. And having just recently been to the Cook Inlet in Alaska, that would be a horrible place to have oil and gas drilling. And I actually think that they would get a lot of local pushback because that is a very beautiful area. And it also allows some plants to stay open, uh, fossil plants to stay open while they install you know, CCS, so, you know, carbon sequestration technology. And also the government is not allowed to pick and choose leasing on public lands to be uh, solar and wind versus oil and gas. They have to have a neutral approach to that. The issue is that the economics are the same. So the economics are still going to be that oil and gas is going to be very expensive to develop and the prices are still going to be volatile. And the market for solar and wind and other clean energy technologies is con going to continue to economically favor those technologies. So compromise uh, makes usually a lot of people unhappy. It seems like people are, are much happier than unhappy. This feels like a pretty appropriate compromise given what we got. What do you think? Oh, on the whole, it is huge. So it will, based on all the analysis, drop greenhouse gas 40% uh, below 2005 levels by 2030. It gives, you know, 30 billion to renewables, 10 billion to EVs, and 60 billion to low-income and energy communities. I mean, it is, it is a huge package that is really going to change the economics and the air. America's back in play. I mean, we were really fearful that the United States could not show up seriously to global climate talks, and now we have a much different hand to play. Absolutely. It really shows uh, uh, there, will, there will be much more credibility as we get to the table, for sure. We're going to take a brief pause here, and after the break, we'll talk about the most impactful policies from this new bill and what comes next for implementation. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live, interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations 
and to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon, and Emily every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. So there's a long list of policies here. If you could pick one or two of the most impactful from the list, what what would they be? So there's sort of three things that I think are going to have the most impact overall. The biggest, I think, is the 10-year window for the tax credits. That's just going to give a runway. It will give a level of certainty to investors and to developers and to industry. That, to me, is the biggest thing. Remember, since Waxman-Markey and even before then, when the production tax credit for wind, the solar investment tax credit, when all of those were percolating along and they kept waxing and waning, depending on what Congress was doing, they would then expire and be limping along and the industry would come to a grinding halt. This is 10 years. That's huge. The second big thing, um, which was something I worked on a lot with the coalition that I'm so proud of as a solar access coalition, were all the equity provisions. So equity is one of those things that you can't just tag on as just, and we're going to make sure everyone has access. You can't do that. You have to be really intentional about what you do. And so there are bonus credits for communities that are low income and for energy communities. There also is funding set aside to develop in those communities and for those communities to have access. And so I think that a lot of the equity provisions are huge in this bill. And then the third thing that I mentioned before is this methane pollution fee. I mean, methane pollution is huge. And I think that that will also be one of the biggest environmental impacts that this bill will have. It seems like even though we got a package that took a much different path and feels very different from the outcome of the ideal Green New Deal, that there's a lot of tenants from the Green New Deal inside this package. That's absolutely true. And I just remember working on, I worked on a lot of the provisions in this bill, and it was a little bit like seeing part of the elephant (laughs) and not really seeing the whole elephant. And so when you see it all put together, you say, wow, this is huge. And this is going to really make sure that we have an energy transition that's clean and that helps everybody. So if we're thinking about this in terms of sectors of the economy that will see the greatest market transformations. It feels like the electric grid, electric vehicles in the transportation sector, and heavy industry will see the greatest impacts. Uh, and that's because in heavy industry, you have a tax credit for uh, you know carbon removal, carbon sequestration. Uh, you could see, uh, you see this extension of tax credits for electric vehicles, and then you have all these tax credits, long-term tax credits for renewable energy. Where do you think we're going to see the most dramatic market transformations as a result of this package? Yeah, so my business partner, Isaac Brown, who has been working on a lot of these provisions too, he and I talked about this and agreed that there is a provision, a battery production tax credit for manufacturing batteries, and it's paid by the kilowatt hour produced in the United States. That is huge. That is going to transform the market for EVs and for all batteries. If you are paid by the kilowatt hours produced, I mean, companies are already starting to move their operations to the U.S., this will completely transform it. And I think we will become a global leader in producing batteries and all of these technologies as a result of this PTC. 
So what do you do next? Are you going to like kind of wipe off your hands and sit back? <laughs> right. Get a bottle. I mean, this is the get first a bottle time. of gray grues and put my like, feet up. <laughs> this is like the first time in, in, in over 12 years that you could actually like rest for a moment. Well, okay. There are a couple more steps. One is we got to get it done in the house, which should be at the end of this week. And then the president will sign it. And then comes the process of implementation. And remember, a lot of this stuff is really new. So Treasury Department is going to have to come up with all these new rules and how do they interpret the language. And it's not easy. This stuff is super complicated. So there's going to be a lot on the implementation side to make sure that you don't inadvertently exclude technologies, to make sure that these credits do what they're supposed to do to make sure that the equity provisions actually go to the people that need them. And so I do think there's a lot on implementation. And there are also going to be some things that are going to need cleaning up or need work on going forward, like the transmission issue. Like There are some companies that are building transmission lines that don't need permitting reform that instead actually need an investment tax credit. So what do those folks do to lower their capex? Or how does hydropower really participate? Because a lot of those provisions were excluded. So I think there's going to be some plenty of work to do in the future. And I think this is just, this is a really good place to start. And it is a huge place to start. It'll put us way ahead, but it doesn't mean we need to stop or even slow down. Well, I'm so pleased we're having this conversation because of course, for the climate and for our economy, but also because I'm sick of using dark music in the podcast when we're <laughs> talking about this. So let's, let's cue some lighter music and go out on a positive note. Yeah, I think we need to play Mr. Rogers almost all the time. <laughs> Congrats on all your work on this and let's see where the next steps take us. Catherine Hamilton is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. And The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. This episode was produced by Alexandria Herr and Cecily Mesa-Martinez. Ann Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand is our engineer. And original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a wide range of sectors. Advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating review on Apple or Spotify. Help us out by shouting us out on social media or commenting on the content in the show. We love to hear your feedback. And thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy.